Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Now reading in that 14th verse, it says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. And Elisha died and was buried. Now, as quickly as I read through that, it's hard for us to grasp the drama that is associated with this story. But we back up just a little bit, and Jehoiaz was another wicked king in a long line of wicked kings over Israel. During his entire 17-year reign, his kingdom was dominated by this group called the Arameans. And after 17 years of oppression, Jehoiaz was only left with 50 horsemen, 10 chariots in the entire kingdom, and 10,000 foot soldiers. His forces and his arsenal had been significantly reduced by the Arameans. After all this humiliation, Jehoiaz finally decides, although he's a wicked king, he finally decides, maybe I had better make amends with God. So he seeks the Lord and asks the Lord for favor and deliverance. And God promised Israel deliverance from Aramean oppression simply because the king had turned his heart around. And even so, even though the king did that and even though God had promised them deliverance, the people did not turn from their idols. They continued in their idol worship. Well, Jehoiaz dies, and another king, Jehoash, takes his place. He reigns 16 years, and he, just like the other kings, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it was sometime during the reign of Jehoash that Elisha, the famous and popular prophet of Israel comes to the end of his life. And we picked up in our scripture reading that at this point where Jehoash goes to visit him, Elisha is an old man, he is sick, 
and he is dying, and he will die from this sickness that has ravaged him. And even though Jehoash had not at any time distinguished himself as a godly king, he does recognize a good thing when he sees it, and that is their prophet. They're very proud of their prophet. He was a popular man in the kingdom. He was an asset, a priceless asset to Israel. For 60 years, Elisha had served his country as a prophet. He had ministered them on a personal level sometimes and, and oftentimes on a political level. Uh, you remember the time that he multiplied the oil for the widow who could not pay her bills. And the prophet had a personal touch with her. And then prophesied and, and blessed her with a promise from the Lord, you'll have a child. And then whenever the child grew uh, a few years and, and died one day, the prophet came by and, and breathed life into the child and raised him up from the dead. So he had this personal touch. He was very popular among the people. He also uh, is the one that when Naaman came into the country and said, we hear you have a miracle-working prophet here, Elisha's the one that uh, showed him how to be healed of his leprosy. Go dip in the River Jordan seven times. And ultimately, with some hesitation, but ultimately Naaman did, and he was healed of his leprosy. These things were unheard of in these days. So the miracles and the, the stories uh, spread and abounded. And then other miracles that Elisha is famous for. He, he cured the poisonous stew. Somebody had thrown some noxious weeds in there, and, and he healed that. He, he multiplied 20 loaves of bread to feed 100 men. Uh, he caused the axe head to float whenever the prophets were building uh, a new building, and the axe head, the borrowed axe, uh, the head flew off, flew into the water, and uh, Elisha caused the axe head to float, and they found it. He, he was hand, handy to have somebody like that around, isn't it? Comes in handy in all kinds of situations. He single-handedly blinded the entire Syrian army, and they being helpless, he, he led them by the hand, and he comes bringing a chain of blind enemy in, into the king and presents them. Here they are. What's the problem? So he, uh, he was a vital spy and informant for the king. Uh, he spared the king repeatedly by telling him where his enemies were going to ambush him and giving him a heads up. And you remember the enemy saying, well, how does the prophet know this? How is it we, we can't even get the jump on the king? E Elisha was the secret weapon. So when King Jehorash hears the news... And Elisha is dying. This is big stuff. This is a sad day for Israel. And the king goes to see the prophet. He really does deeply respect him. And I find this a very touching part of the story. The, the king walks into the room where the prophet is. And, and of all the things that he could have said or might have said... What is recorded that he said is very interesting. According to this account, 
the very first thing out of his mouth when he walks in is he says, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Now, the reason this is significant is because Elisha was a protege of Elijah. Elisha was just going about his own business. He was out in the field plowing with some oxen. And God called him, laid his hand of anointing on him. And through Elijah, he said, I want you to train this young man to follow in your footsteps. So Elijah goes out into the field and pulls Elisha away from his duties and said, God has chosen you. And Elisha was so cooperative and responsive to this call that he slaughtered the oxen and he burned the plow and he said, I've got a new direction in life. I'm never going back to being a plow boy. I'm going to follow the man of God and I'm going to learn from him. And Elisha did. He, he followed Elijah wherever Elijah went. He couldn't lose him. He said, because if you stick with me, and if you see me, whenever the Lord catches me up, then you will have a double portion of my spirit. And that's all Elisha needed. He was motivated now. He's not going to let this guy out of his sight wherever he goes. He wants to see this. Until that day, whenever Elisha is studying Elijah, and God catches Elijah up in the fiery chariot, and when Elisha sees Elijah caught away and realizes he is now left with the ministry, and on Elijah's departure, the mantle comes floating down to earth. And now the mantle is Elisha's. Elisha, seeing this scene, says, My father, my father, chariots of the Lord, and the horsemen. So when the king walks in and he says that, the old dying prophet remembers. He remembers the call. He remembers his mentor. And his heart warms. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes on him as he remembers the 60 years that God has used him mightily in ministering to his people. And the Spirit comes upon him and he's got one more prophecy left in him. And he tells the king who has come to see him, he said, open the east window. Shoot an arrow out the window. And the king does it. And then the prophet says, that means you're going to have victory over Aram, the Arameans. And so this whole thing is just rich in its implications. And the king has just been guaranteed deliverance from the Arameans. Because these people have been having problems with them for years. And the final word from the prophet is, you'll be delivered. Now, 
the significance of the king shooting the arrow. It's important we understand this. In that culture, it was common when somebody declared war on somebody else that they would shoot an arrow toward that enemy. The enemy didn't have to be visible. If the enemy was to the east, you shoot an arrow to the east. Or throw a spear. Even one of the commentators that I was studying had mentioned that Alexander the Great arrived on the coasts of Iona. And he, just like these people did, threw a dart towards Persia. The dart or the arrow or the spear was an emblem I'm declaring war against the enemy. So by shooting this arrow to the east, God was sanctioning the war that would be declared against the oppressors of Israel. Now, we have people here, because of your age, and because of the long period of time you have been involved in church. You remember singing uh, more hymns that had a military flavor to it. Remember that? They even wrote little courses. Larry keeps wanting to sing, God's got an army marching through the land. He's got that one right there in the cranium. Because we remember those. Onward Christian soldiers. Hold the fort, for I'm coming. I'm on the battlefield for my Lord. A mighty fortress is our God. There was a military flavor to our, our theology, our songs, our worship, our whole mentality about Christianity. I don't know if you realize it or not, but today there's an aversion to having this military flavor to our Christianity. There's a whole generation now that doesn't want to use military terms. And there's two reasons why this has happened. The first reason is because those who are wanting to evangelize are taking a more peaceful approach to evangelizing the world. As opposed to the dark blot on Christianity that happened in our past. When the church conducted crusades. And the world is aware of that dark era of the church. And it was basically... Blood battles between, between Christianity and the Muslims. It was about protecting Jerusalem, mainly. And then it expanded out from there into other battlefronts. Islands in the Mediterranean and various areas that uh, the Muslims were trying to take and the Christians were trying to protect. So there were crusades. 
hearts. And they would go forth in military battle to fight. Of course, the Christians were believing that they were advancing the kingdom with the sword. And anybody who understands that history, knows anything about the history, is embarrassed that the church had gotten to the point where they thought the promulgation of the gospel, the spread of the gospel around the world, would come with physical might and force. And the world who understands that aspect of the history of the church holds that against Christianity. So the attitude and response today is to divorce ourselves from the era of the Crusades and living in an age that has become so sensitive to terminology and political correctness we even begin to see people forsake the word crusade. Billy Graham always had his crusades. We thought nothing of it. But as the sensitivity of people became more and more keen in this politically correct age, they were offended by the references to crusades. So we got rid of the terminology. We apologized for what the church did at one time. And it changed the whole approach of Christianity from one of having any kind of a military flavor whatsoever into one that is now a very peaceful religion. So we, we got rid of our military songs. We quit talking in military terms. Now, the second reason that we've avoided, avoided the military attachment is because we have militant people sometimes, fringe militant people, that under the banner the umbrella of Christianity, they, they do silly things like bomb abortion clinics. I mean, they are arming themselves, they are attacking people in the name of the Lord, and that embarrasses us. So we have two incentives here for why the church is hesitant to have a military aspect. But the problem is, as the pendulum swings from this side to this side, it goes to extremes, doesn't it? And you just can't get the thing to swing to the middle and stay there. So as you swing away from one extreme, that embarrasses us. We try to separate ourselves from it. It swings to the other extreme, where now we're all peace and love, and we've even decided to redefine God so the world doesn't think he's angry. And, and at, at some point, people have, have gotten to the point where they don't want to think of God as being anything but just a God, a, a big ball of love. Get rid of hell, because we can't think of a God who would send anybody to hell. They're accusing God of being a monster because he allowed his own child to be crucified, and that's child abuse. And it, it, the whole thing has swung so far to the other direction, it's just as silly as it was when it was the other side. And the problem is this, that Paul, that I, I trust Paul. <laughs> I think you do too. Paul loved the military analogy. And we can't just dump this because we've had some sour experiences. We cannot lose the military edge. We just have to redefine what it means to be, uh, have a military attitude about our Christianity. So Paul, in just a few of his expressions, as I don't want to spend much time exhausting this, but in Philippians 2.25 and Philemon 1.2, Paul refers to his fellow workers and fellow Christians as fellow soldiers. He chose that term very carefully. He saw them as being involved in a war. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he tells Timothy to join with him in suffering like a good soldier. 
And that he reminds him no one serving as a soldier gets himself entangled in civilian affairs. But he tries to please his commanding officer. Three references to something military there. In 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he justifies the compensation of a minister by choosing to equate uh, that to a soldier who never serves at his own expense. He's appropriately compensated. So once again, he keeps thinking of the military. And we're just like being in the military. In Ephesians, we have the popular passage about the whole armor of God. And in that, he goes into great detail talking about uh, we as Christians, if we use this military metaphor, we have to understand that we have a breastplate. It's our righteousness. We have a helmet. It's our salvation. We have a 